Uh, Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Like the story of Abraham, what we see before us is history. It's, it's a tale, but it's not fiction. It's a tale of a woman who leaves home and family to go to a foreign land under the Lord's care. Those of you who are familiar with the story of Abraham will recall that that's what he does. He becomes a sojourner in a foreign land. This is different, though. Um, if you haven't had occasion to read the Pentateuch and then into Joshua and Judges and Ruth, you, you're not going to... You're not going to be able to fully appreciate what I'm about to say. So if you haven't done that, you'll have to take my word for it. When you get to Ruth, my opinion, this is subjective. The, the edges of the Old Testament are dulled a little bit. The, the text is written in a different font. It's a more delicate one. It's an elegant poetry that replaces the blunt force of the Old Testament story up to this point. And I think part of the reason for that is that our characters are mostly feminine. It's not surprising, therefore, that the narrative would seem more gentle. It seems to flow a touch more steadily to me, a touch more gracefully. So instead of the resolve of Abraham or the passion of Moses or the valiance of Joshua or the might of Samson or the courage of Gideon, I see in Naomi and in Ruth a profound picture of covenant faithfulness to one another. These women should inspire our daughters, our wives, our mothers, our grandmothers, and our sisters they should also inspire every husband, father, grandfather, and brother in the room. Perhaps nowhere in Scripture, until we reach Matthew, do you see a more moving picture of God's grace at work specifically in the context of such human frailty. I'm not saying God's grace doesn't exist, isn't depicted elsewhere in the Old Testament. I'm saying, in my opinion, subjectively, you have to get all the way to the person Jesus Christ before you see this kind of power portrayed in these kinds of people. We will see sorrow, and we will be taught to understand grief's role in God's plan. We will see unbelief and be warned of the darkness of those times when we drift from the path of obedience. We will seek courage and be helped to take comfort in God's promises. We will see provision and be corrected for our pessimism and doubt, which is driven so much by our circumstances. Let me say that again. We will see provision. Amazing provision for frail and fragile people, which will rebuke us for our pessimism and doubt, which results primarily from our circumstances. 
We will see joy and be reminded of God's blessing in our own lives and learn to mark God's blessing in our own lives. And finally, we will see faith and I hope be inspired to take bold steps in our own walk with God. The book of Ruth, named arguably after the principal character, depending on, uh, you know, you just go by name count or what the focal point of the text is, has an unknown author. Jewish tradition holds that Samuel wrote Ruth, along with Judges and 1 Samuel. That would put the writing date around 1,000 years before Christ, perhaps during the reign of King Saul is when it was written. Not when it happened, when it was written. Other scholars argue for a later date, following the exile in Babylon, that this was some obscure tale that had been passed down through the generations and finally somebody put quill to parchment or papyrus or whatever and wrote it down around 450 BC. Regardless, the opening line tells us that the story itself took place at the time when the judges rule. So we have our timeline. The purpose of the book is difficult to establish unless you, like me, hold the view that all of the Old Testament is, is designed to point forward to Jesus Christ. Biblical interpreters have struggled to find a single dominant theme in Ruth, but here again we can, we can be helped, I think, uh, by bearing in mind the messianic tones that are woven throughout. So we have our authorship, we don't know. We have our date, we don't know. And we have our occasion, we're not sure. Let's dive in. In the days when the judges ruled, so this will be verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And we'll stop there. My favorite poet, Shel Silverstein, wrote, There are no happy endings. Endings are the saddest part. So give me a happy middle and a very happy start. And I suspect that what he meant by that was death is the end. My favorite doctrinal train wreck Christian author, C.S. Lewis, wrote, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. It was famine that drove Elimelech and Naomi from Bethlehem to Moab. This was a 20-mile journey northeast to the tip of the Dead Sea and another 20 miles down into Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. To compare 
Imagine walking from here to Epley Airfield and then from Epley Airfield down to Glenwood, Iowa. Uh, But imagine doing this at a time when there were no paved roads, bandits were plenteous, and there were no hiking boots. Difficult journey. Not a long one, but a dangerous one nonetheless. So Naomi and her husband, along with their two sons, Malon and Kilion, settle in Moab. The time of the judges in Israel is infamous as a time of instability and apostasy. If you read it, you will see things that you don't understand why God included in his Bible. We'll leave it there because we don't have time to get into judges. The curse of famine as a judgment of God is threatened, promised, prescribed in Deuteronomy and carried out multiple times throughout the history of Israel. It's a sorrowful reality and one that we'd probably better get a grip on. It's a sorrowful reality that in all of the history of God's dealing with nations, his faithful covenant people are not preserved from the suffering that the nation around them endures for disobedience. So Naomi's relocation was the result of a flagrantly wicked nation ignoring God's law. And in those days, when food was scarce, you had to just go wherever it was raining and hope for the best. The family moves to Moab. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Genesis 19. But here's another example of a story I'm not sure... I, I get that God is, is just fully disclosing the reality of what human beings and, and their fallen nature are up to. But this one, I don't even want to reference. Because what happens is after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife is killed because she turns around to observe the destruction, probably mourning the loss of her possessions. Lot and his two daughters are preserved and go up into the hill country where his daughters get themselves pregnant by their own father through a drunken seduction. One of them has a son named Moab. Guess where the Moabites come from? Needless to say, this was not a God-fearing people. Sometime after they had settled in Moab, Naomi's husband perished. We don't know the cause. We don't know. But you can imagine the fear that she may have felt in those moments Uh, directly after his death, and you can imagine how grateful she must have been that she had two sons who could help care for her. They were probably old enough at that point. Ten years passed, during which time the boys marry Moabite women, one named Orpah and one named Ruth, and then both sons die. We don't know the cause, but we can imagine the effect. The loss of her husband had barely begun to ease, and her sons join him in eternity. C.S. Lewis wrote another line about the loss of his wife after her death in 1960. He said, her absence is like the sky spread over everything. And I have to imagine that that, that's similar to what Naomi felt. Shakespeare wrote, everyone can master grief except him that has it. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't pause at verse 5 and like walk us through what Naomi was experiencing. The narrative just soldiers on as though it's not important. And while the text does eventually reveal what Naomi is feeling, I want to pause here and set the table because some of you know 
Some of you have been through it. Some of you uh, would like to wait here for just a moment and identify with Naomi because you've lived the following truth. Death does not end a relationship. It just ends a life. So the experience of going on after somebody who you love has passed is incredibly difficult, breathtakingly so. In the brain, there are a multitude of different types of cells that do a multitude of different things. Uh, I think in two, three hundred years, we're going to look back. We won't, but whoever's looking will look back and think that our understanding of how the human brain works is so rudimentary, it's comical. But right now, it's mind-blowing. Okay, Here's where we're at. Studies done under functional MRI have revealed an amazing thing. We have a cell type aptly named trace cells in the brain. Functional MRI is the one where they can observe chemical changes in the brain in real time. So they're kind of using it to figure out, well, this part of the brain lights up during this experience and that one lights up during that experience. So we're guessing that this part of the brain has something to do with this and that part of the brain has something to do with that. In a study where participants were taken through an encoding trial, and virtually subjected to an environment where they learned the location of objects in the environment through repetition. Think uh, a basket of fruit on a table or a lamp on a table. So, so the participants would be taken virtually, through virtual reality, into this environment and asked to interact with a specific object repeatedly. Okay? Ready for the 300th time, walk into the room, go up to the table, and pick up whatever, whatever the object is. Once the object locations had been encoded on the brain, the subject would be taken to the environment, but the object would be missing. Trace cells in the brain immediately became active. You can watch a person on an fMRI doing the math, as it were trying to figure out what happened to the expected object. It's a different area of the brain than is responsible, near as we can tell, for just memory in the classic understanding of memory. This is investigative. It's searching. It's trying to solve the problem. Where did the thing go? The cells are tracing the spot where the object should be and demanding to know where it is. Now, all of you who just tuned out, because you're talking about the brain, are going to miss a beautiful thing that I'm about to tell you about grief. And you will never understand why you're suffering the way you're suffering when you're in grief someday. Too bad for you. One of the most amazing things we've learned about how the brain reacts to grief is that the exact same cells are activated when a person experiencing grief is, is, is experiencing it related to the loss of a loved one. So think about this. Your brain expects them to be there even though you know they're not going to be. Those trace cells are looking for them, searching for them, trying to understand why they're not there where they're supposed to be. Long after you know that they're not going to be there, these trace cells are active. People who are experiencing grief talk about 
these frustrating side effects, forgetfulness, trouble thinking clearly, confusion, difficulty processing emotion, and altered perception of time and memory distortion. These are all commonly reported by someone in the midst of grief and quite possibly because the loss of a loved one, and folks, that could be your dog. The loss of a loved one puts us in the same posture mentally as when we can't find our car keys. How frustrating is that? You'll find the keys eventually. You put them in the freezer or wherever. But you're not going to find the loved one. They're gone. Good luck convincing your brain of that. So in counseling people who are experiencing grief, I've often illustrated the grieving process using the grief box. I'm going to put this up here so that you can see it. I don't know if you'll be able to see it or not. Classic time for the projector to break down, right? So I want you to imagine a box with a button inside. You can't see the button unless you're up high enough, but there's a button at the bottom of this box. Maybe I should, can you see it? Red button, okay. Each time that button is pressed, what happens is, this is just imaginary, right? Each time that button is pressed, what happens is you experience profound grief, okay? At the outset of a loss, go to the next slide. At the outset of a a loss, a giant ball is created in the grief box, perfectly sized to occupy all the empty space in the box. And what's it doing? It's pressing the grief button. So for a number of days, weeks, months, this is your reality when you lose somebody that you love. It's the first thing you think about when you wake up. It's the last thing you think about as you're going to sleep, and it's what you dream about during those moments when you are asleep. The good news is, because the ball has a leak, as time goes by, it shrinks. Let's see the next slide. So eventually, the ball's, you know, small enough that it comes off the button. And so you have a day where you wake up, And it's not the very first thing you think about. And so you're able to kind of function. You're able to kind of move. And then in the moment that you do, next slide, what happens is the ball gets jostled right back down onto that grief button and you feel like, man, I'm right back where I started. Or some life event happens that reminds you of the loved one you've lost and you're right back where you started. But here's what you don't know. That ball got smaller. Let's look at the next slide. Eventually it gets small enough that it's just kind of bouncing around in there and it doesn't touch the button all that often. Maybe months, maybe weeks, maybe years, maybe 10 years goes by and it gets to that size right there where it's so small, out of the blue, one day it feels just like the first day because that thing is never going away. It's always going to be there. Out of the blue, the ball, now the size of a speck, makes its way down and taps the button again. The persistence of grief can be very frustrating. You think you're finally over it. And then you find out that you're not because you don't get over the loss of a loved one. You simply learn to live with their loss. So you hear the story of Naomi and you want to pause and identify with her because unlike other people, some of you in this room, your button got pressed. And it might be heartless of me to choose to preach a text that I knew was going to do that to you, but my hope is that while you're right back into that strange mental posture, tracing the place in your mind where your loved one should be, we can keep going 
and trust that God's word will tend that wound. Amen? All right, verse 6. Naomi hears some news from back home in Bethlehem. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Uh, A quick glance at my notes reminded me that I needed to say this. Very important. I don't know where I first heard the illustration of the grief ball, but I assure you I did not come up with that on my own. Okay? Just so, I don't want anybody sitting here thinking, he's so insightful. I ripped that off. I just don't know from whom. All right, so the famine in Israel has ended. Naomi starts packing. This is easy to understand. When you are in sorrow, you want what's familiar. And there's nothing familiar about Moab, not even after 10 years, if you're an Israelite. Her daughters-in-law see her gather her things. They see her grab her walking stick. They wipe away their tears, and they're looking at one another questioningly. They follow her out the door onto the road and begin to walk with her, not sure what's happening. Eventually, Naomi reaches the point where it doesn't make any sense for them to escort her anymore, and so she turns and speaks. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. The weeping of these two ladies tells me everything that I need to know about Naomi. These are her daughters-in-law. In a godless culture like Moab, these women have been fortunate enough to meet a a woman because of of how well-raised her sons were. They're fortunate enough to meet a woman who has taught them, who who has improved their lives by her Israelite godly ways, and, and they've probably even begun to believe some of the promises of God. Mothers in law, mothers in law and future mothers-in-law. Do not underestimate your impact on your godless daughters-in-law. If it comes to that. Oh, and don't underestimate the impact you may have by drifting. Verse 10, they said to her, no, we're going to return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons right now, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Grief often leads us to think incorrectly. Do you see it? Two things wrong with the way Naomi is thinking. First, her only use to Orpah and Ruth is the provision of future husbands for them. In her own mind, that's what she thinks. When we are in deep sorrow, one of the first graces we lose grip of is the grace to care for others. The well runs dry, the tank gets empty, the wick smolders, 
and we just don't have anything to offer. At least one of these women, of her daughters-in-law, at least one of them is not after her provision, but after her companionship. But sorrow makes it hard for us to see clearly. As Christina McMorris wrote, the whole world can become the enemy when you lose what you love. The second problem with Naomi's thinking is that she believes the death of her husband and sons is the judgment of God against her. Boy, do we ever still labor with this misconception. If a sick child is the discipline of the Lord over your sin, then what is a dead one? The devil loves to oppress mothers and fathers with this evil lie, but listen to God. All right, this is the heart of your Father in heaven. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Well, if your spouse dies or your kid dies, or God forbid, both, the Lord is near to those who are crushed in spirit. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Psalm 55, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Who do we think those promises are for? Perfect Christians? The ones that don't sin anymore? There is no such thing. Those promises are for us. Naomi believes the hand of the Lord has gone out against her because grief makes us think incorrectly. It makes us view other people the wrong way. It makes us view God the wrong way. And then God's providence is mistaken for his judgment. And, and God is mistaken for a harsh master rather than the loving father. Verse 14, Ruth 1. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So Orpah gives up. She gives up. She goes home. But Ruth clings to Naomi. But look at the depth of Naomi's grief. Your sister-in-law has abandoned God for idolatry. You should do the same thing. Is that somebody who's thinking clearly? Is that an Israelite in whom there is no deceit? In the midst of her sorrow, Naomi actually encourages Ruth to forsake the one true God. You think she actually wants Ruth to do that? Or is she just that hurt? I think she does it inadvertently because, again, grief makes us malfunction mentally. And really, I mean, let's be honest, okay? Grief can be caused by not only death, but divorce, disappointment, disaster, even just dysfunction. Grief can have many sources. When stress is ratcheted up at work or at home and sorrow blooms in your heart, do you get dumber or is it just me? Let's be merciful to Naomi. She's in pain. Verse 16. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For you, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. No sooner does it become clear what's actually going on here. The choice of homeland is a choice for or against the one true God. 
No sooner does that become clear than we first see the courage and the beauty of Ruth's faith. She invokes a covenant. She doesn't just say, no, I'm staying. She invokes a covenant. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I will die, and that's where I'll be buried. And then she says, may the Lord afflict me more painfully than you have been afflicted. If anything but death parts me from you. That's commitment. Let's not forget that Ruth and Naomi share a similar sorrow. Both of them have lost a husband. Both of them are grieving. Both of them are confused. Both of them are in profound distress. And both of them have reasons to wonder if God still loves them. But somehow, Ruth has this grace to realize that Naomi isn't trying to hurt her, but help her the best that she can in her current state. Somehow, Ruth has the grace to recognize that staying in Moab is simply not an option. Somehow, Ruth has the conviction that Naomi's company is more valuable than her family and her friends and her birthplace back home. You tell me what kind of woman Naomi was. You tell me. Even in the midst of this sobbing mess, this mournful, dejecting, disquieting, depressing, hideous picture of loss and heartache. You tell me what kind of woman Naomi was. Ruth is committed to being with Naomi no matter what. What does that tell you about Naomi? Mothers-in-law, do not underestimate the impact you can have on your godless daughters-in-law or sons-in-law. And don't underestimate the impact you can have by drifting. Naomi realizes she isn't going to talk Ruth out of coming, so she says no more. Sometimes that's the best you can do when you're stricken with grief. Just shut up. Just don't talk anymore. When, uh, when Job's friends first rolled up, they did the right thing. They sat down for seven days and seven nights and didn't say a word. And that was, that was perfect. Because the minute they started talking, it was like, well, clearly you've sinned, brother, and you need to repent. What is it that you've done? Just be honest. Confess before God. Which doesn't help anybody when they're crushed with sorrow. This is your fault. You did this to yourself. So Naomi just gets quiet. And she keeps walking. So the two of them, verse 19, went on until they came to Bethlehem. They came to Bethlehem. The whole town town was stirred because of them. The woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of Barley Harst. Call me Mara. The name Naomi comes from the word meaning delightful, pleasant. So when she comes into Bethlehem and everyone recognizes her, they call her by her name. But imagine your name was Rejoice or your name was Delightful. 
and you're in the midst of profound sorrow over the loss of your children and your husband, and you come into the auditorium and it's like, delightful. And you're like, are you kidding me? So she says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. And for a second time in this text, Naomi suggests that her fate is the result of God's disapproval of and judgment upon her. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. He has testified against me and brought calamity upon me. Grief, listen, 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 listen. Grief will make you think incorrectly. I mentioned a few minutes ago that one of the things that happens when we experience the loss of a loved one is that the same part of your brain which searches for a missing object is activated. There's an involuntary activity in this regard. Unlike your car keys, the wallet, your phone, your glasses, you didn't misplace the loved one. They are gone and you know they are gone. Yet, physiologically, our minds function the same way as when we misplace something. It's like going up the stairs in the dark, right? You get to the top, but you don't know you're at the top, and you do that thing where you take the one more step that's unnecessary, and you, your whole body says, time to hoist this 160 pounds up again, but there's nothing there. And so your heart like stops because you just press the universe down. It's the only logical conclusion. Or you go to the milk carton in the fridge, and Last time, 20 minutes ago, you were in there, it was full. So you know the amount of force required to lift it. Unfortunately for you, somebody in the intervening 20 minutes has come and all but emptied it. So you grab it, wham, right into the top of the fridge. Your body has to go through this. What in the world just happened? Where is the other stair? Where did all the milk go? Where is my loved one? Every time that button gets hit, where are they? Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. They're gone. When we lose a loved one, we can't function correctly. Call me bitter. Because <clears throat> God has testified against me. These are the words of a woman beside herself with sorrow. Amen? She can't possibly know what is about to happen. and She will never know while she's alive what ultimately happens. But the end of this story... The end of this story is the birth of a baby to Ruth. His name is Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. And a thousand years later, Ruth, the Moabite woman adopted by Naomi and brought home from Moab to Bethlehem, is mentioned in the genealogy of another baby who's born in Bethlehem. Great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. In the midst of profound sorrow, we don't think right. We don't evaluate our situation right. We don't even consider things the right way. We can't. Listen to me. You can't. If you can, then you're not experiencing sorrow, and you're probably a psychopath. You can't in the midst of sorrow. Your eyes are full of tears. Your heart is full of disappointment. We suspect God is finally finished with us because why else would it hurt this bad? 
If I'm loved by God, I can't hurt this much. But I'm here to tell you, yes, you can. Yeah, yes, you absolutely can. Trust me. The problem is, I think, mainly, we lack the ability to play the tape forward. Right? You don't know the outcome. There's some things you know the outcome of. If I run and dive off of this stage, you can play the tape forward and see I'm going to sustain some kind of injury. If you decide to drive on the wrong side of the interstate, you can play the tape forward and know how that's going to turn out. Pretty close. But you can't play the tape forward when somebody else is driving on the wrong side of the interstate and you don't see them until it's too late. You can't play the tape forward when a clot is thrown, works its way through your pulmonary system and there's an embolism. You can't play the tape forward when your kid has a cell somewhere in their body that mutates and becomes cancerous and collects a bunch of cells that mutate and become cancerous until it turns into a tumor and it's inoperable and they're going to die and you just found out you have six weeks left of them. You can't play that tape forward. So you just get stuck. Somebody dies and you just get stuck. We can't see what God is doing. We can't imagine how any of this is good and so sorrow often leads to unbelief. Often leads to unbelief. We see this with Naomi's broken heart. Whether we doubt God's goodness or we doubt his mercy toward us because of our own sinfulness, unbelief is at the root of so many gnarled souls that I've encountered. Hurt people who go around and hurt people. We disbelieve God's promises and think we are on the, beyond the reach of his redeeming love. When that happens, all kinds of sin can be birthed. We begin to drift from the path of obedience because, frankly, we see no matter one way or the other. I hurt so much, all I want is to die. We're not thinking right. Think about this. We're pretty sure we know that the brain, physiologically, whether you want it to or not, we're pretty sure we know that when you experience the loss of somebody whom you love a great deal, we're pretty sure we know the brain goes, where are they? And you can't shut that off. That means you can't think right unless you discipline yourself unless you cultivate the grace to cling to promises. Grief makes us think incorrectly, so God gave us the book of Ruth. And here's what he's telling you. By the end, we'll know this. God's saying, you see how faithful I was? I haven't changed. I still love you. Trust me. It's the only reason this little story is in your Bible. It's because God is telling you, I haven't changed. I still love you. 
I'm still with you. Trust me. Here's the beautiful thing about that. You don't have to think right to trust. But if you're trusting, you'll be thinking right. To prove it, let me offer an illustration. We've all seen these exercises, right? The trust fall or the, something along those lines. Everything in your body says, this is a terrible idea. And depending on who's waiting to catch you, it might be, in fairness. But the concept is that there are things that you intuitively believe that you're mistaken about. And if you'll engage in the activity, you will cultivate the ability to change the way that you think about the thing. So God says, I'm still faithful. I still love you. Trust me. And then he puts you on a path that brings you into horrifying sorrow. What will you do? Will you trust him? Let the tape play forward and see what it is that he's doing. I would say, what choice do we have? What am I going to do, stay in Moab? May we be a people who are cultivating the ability to entrust ourselves fully to God. Amen? Let's pray.